Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Good evening. Take your Bible and join me in Mark chapter 3, verses 31 through 35, which will bring our study of the third chapter to an end. Mark chapter 3, verse 31 through verse 35. Who is a part of the family of God? It's not very popular to say that everyone is not a part of the family of God. Uh, Recently, the newly elected governor of Alabama... Uh, got into some significant hot water when, in a black Baptist church in Birmingham, he said, not everyone who is here is my brother and sister if you have not trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And then he went on to provide a very clear gospel testimony and to extend a gospel invitation. Uh, The media went ballistic. Uh, Jewish groups... Secular groups, Hindu groups were aghast that he would not affirm that everyone is a child of God. And so because of uh, sentimentalism, because we want to be non-judgmental, and because some people even have adopted a position of theological or philosophical inclusivism, uh, it is not... uh, Unpopular, or it's not, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Often you will find people in theological seminaries and colleges, but also out there in the popular culture, you'll have people that affirm some form of universalism, or what some using it in a end time kind of a way, in an eschatological kind of a way, call it universal reconciliation. In other words, ultimately, Everybody is going to be saved. Ultimately, everybody is going to make it to heaven. Even uh, the church father, Origen, uh, who was a universalist, believed that eventually even all the demons and Satan would be restored back to their initial home in heaven. As I was looking into this issue, I came across an article by a man named Keith DeRose, who is a professor of philosophy at Yale University. And so in an article entitled Universalism and the Bible, the really good news, he simply defines universalism this way. Universalism refers to the position that eventually all human beings will be saved and will enjoy everlasting life with Christ. In short, then, it's the position that every human being will eventually at least make it to the party. Well, his view, along with others who come alongside of him, uh, though perhaps attractive to our sentimental side, is crushed on the rocks of biblical revelation and biblical truth. And in fact, this passage tonight, though it is not its intent, is one of those passages that absolutely pulverize this false teaching that eventually everyone is going to be saved. 
In fact, the words that we're going to encounter tonight in Mark 3, 31 through 35 is one of those hard sayings of Jesus. Uh, as we walk through it, you're going to find the words to be surprising. You're going to find the words to be startling. In fact, I would not be surprised if some of you found the words to be shocking. In other words, Jesus is going to shoot down the false doctrine of universalism, and he will actually do so at the expense of his family. Now, it's important for us to put it into its context. Thematically, uh, this particular passage is connected back to verse 20 and 21. There we read, Then he went home, that is Jesus, back to the home of uh, Peter and uh, his mother-in-law, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, uh, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. And so his family is now in his area. They have come to find him, and they believe that they need to capture him, to take hold of him and take him back home, if necessarily by force, because he's not taking care of himself. He's either deranged or is mentally uh, off balance. Also in the context, as we saw last week, in verses 22 through 30, you have the religious leaders accusing him of being demon-possessed and saying that he is doing what he is doing by the power of Satan. So the religious leaders are saying he is demon-possessed. Uh, his family is saying that he is deranged and mentally off. And so Jesus uses this as the occasion to make it clear who is a part of his family and who is not. To say it another way, uh, who's in and who is out. And again, his words could not be more striking. They could not be more clear. And yes, they in many ways could not be more surprising. I assure you, they were very, very, very surprising to those who heard these words the first time. And so look at it with me. Mark chapter 3, verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? Now, looking around at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Three things, then, I want to show you tonight from this passage of Scripture concerning who is a part of the family of God. Number one, being a part of the family of God is not by physical descent or relationship. Mary and the brothers of Jesus arrived, probably again at the home of Peter's mother-in-law. I have no reason to think that what takes place in verse 31 is not connected back to verse 20 and also verse 21. And so they are there, and they want to seize him and take him back home because they're convinced, as verse 21 said, he is out of his mind. I think it, was, it is interesting to note that Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, informs us that Jesus had at least four brothers. Uh, their names were James, Joseph, 
Simon and Judas. And of course, James becomes the lead apostle in the church at Jerusalem following Pentecost. And of course, he gave us the letter that we also know as the epistle of James. The very next verse in Matthew 13, 56, we also learn that Jesus had some sisters, but we're never told exactly how many there were, and we're not told what their names were. But here's what's interesting in this text. Verse 31 says, his mother and his brothers came, and they were standing where? Outside. In other words, number one, the crowd was so great, most likely they could not get in. But already Mark is drawing a contrast between those who are outside and those who are inside. Those who are close to Jesus and those who are far away from Jesus. And amazingly right now, the ones who are far away is his mother and his biological brothers. And so the text tells us there in verse 32, a crowd was sitting around him. And so they said to him, your mother and your brothers, they are outside and they are seeking you. And so they have sent to him. They're calling out to him. And Jesus's response in verse 33, again, is nothing but shocking. He answered them and said, who are my mother and my brothers? In other words, you're like, wait a minute. It's very clear the ones who are trying to get to him, his biological mother and his biological brothers, and perhaps his sisters are there as well, they are the ones who are his mother and his brothers. That's how they would have clearly thought in a strongly patriarchal, strongly ethnocentric first world culture. If you think the family... And all of you know my heart here. I have a great love and, and passion uh, for marriage and family. But if you think family uh, is the epicenter of at least our popular way of talking, it pales into comparison to how significant the family was in that day. Furthermore, the whole issue of shame in the Semitic culture would play into this and that Jesus would even speak this way, that he would even raise a question would have been just shameful. Uh, unheard of. They could not have believed what he was saying. Now, he implies here in verse 33 what he's going to make explicit in verse 35, and that is physical descent and relationship is not how one becomes a member of the family of God. In fact, what is he saying? At least three things. One, no physical family is ultimately necessary. Number two, no particular race or culture is ultimately essential. Uh, number three, when you are a member of the family of God, you are part of the only family that really does matter. And so let me go back for a moment. Even though Danny Aiken was born to Lowell and Emily Aiken, who, when I came to this world, they were believers and followers of Jesus, that did not have one thing to do with whether or not I would be a Christian or not be a Christian. In other words, my descent from my parents or even from my godly grandparents means absolutely nothing as to whether or not I will be accepted 
in the kingdom of God. Now, of course, it had its benefits in that I was exposed to the Bible, exposed to the church, exposed to the gospel. But the fact matter is, I won't be able to stand before God and say, oh, you should let me into heaven. I should be a part of your family because my mom and dad are a part of your family. No, that has absolutely nothing, zero, in terms of whether or not one is related to Jesus and a part of his spiritual family. It doesn't matter what part of uh, your culture or, or what race you might happen to, to be of. Uh, there's been a times in our country where, if we didn't say it out loud, some people thought it that, well, it's, it's the white race that is uniquely related to the Bible and to Jesus. Or being an American. You see, you do need to understand, as these who serve on the foreign field will tell you, that most people uh, around the world conceive of Americans as being Christians. If you're an American then you are a Christian, and they simply make that natural connection. And unfortunately, that causes them to badly misunderstand what authentic Christianity really is. No, it's not a part of your nationality. It's not a part of your race. It's not a part of your culture. It's none of those things. No, fourthly, the family of God is a spiritual reality, not a physical one. And what's so amazing about this family is look at what God puts together. I began to think just through the ones that we've already seen in Mark's gospel. And so you have a, a zealot disciple and now a tax collector, Matthew. Beforehand, they hated each other's guts and would have taken delight in the death of the other. You have thieves and murderers and liars and cheats. You say, well, I'm good to go. I don't fall into any of those categories. You're telling me they actually get into the family of God. They do when they put their faith in Christ and begin to do his will. But I didn't leave you and me out. They're legalists. There are the self-righteous who believe, at least for a time in their lives, that God should let me into heaven because of what I've done and the kind of life I've lived. And they are just as lost. In fact, they may be actually more lost than the murderer, than the thief, than the prostitute, than the pimp, because they know that they're sinful. The uh, fact of the matter is, and I'll say it many, many times as I have opportunity to speak here, you can't get saved before you get lost. And for people in the church, sometimes their biggest obstacle to authentic faith in Christ is they just don't think that they're lost. I, I, I just, I cringe whenever I am sharing the gospel with someone and they say, well, you know, I've always been a Christian. No, you haven't. If you're even here tonight and you think that, well, I just, I, I, I cannot think of a time when I was not a Christian. You need to rethink that. I'm not saying that you are not a Christian, but you've not always been a Christian. There had to be a point in your life where you came to see your sinfulness, where you came to understand that you could not be saved by good work, where you saw that Jesus Christ alone paid in full the penalty of your sin, and you with a conscious decision repented of your sin and placed your faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation. And the day that you did, you then became a member of the family of God. Now, I don't want to be too hard on, um, on Mary and the brothers. Uh, their request uh, is a natural one. Their request is quite normal. It's quite expected. What, what is unexpected is, is not that they want him. What is, what is unexpected is the response that he gives in verse 33. Well, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And being a part of God's family is not by physical descent or relationship. Number two, 
Being a part of the family of God is not the result of finding Jesus interesting or helpful. I don't think this is overt, but I think it's implied by verse 34. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Well, here are my mother and here are my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. In other words, if physical relationships are not the key to a spiritual relationship with God, what else might be ruled out? In other words, what are some other false perspectives that some people might have today, as they did, did then, that might lead them to falsely conclude, and then might even lead us to falsely conclude, that they actually are a part of God's family. Now, here's how I got to the observation I'm making, so see if you think I, I'm being fair with the text. Verse 34 tells us that the room is filled with people. It also says that Jesus looked about at those who were around him. Now, some of the ones that were there were those who loved him and wanted to follow him like the twelve. But there were others there that we know from the previous three chapters, or two and then this chapter, who were there because they loved his miracles. They loved his exorcisms. uh, They loved, if you like, the show. And they really, really, really liked what Jesus could do for them. Now, keep this in mind. I said it earlier. If you study the Gospel of Mark from chapter 1 through chapter 16, you will discover that the crowds are never portrayed in a positive light. The crowds don't come to Jesus. Individuals do. The crowds may be there for a thousand one different reasons. Some of those reasons may be good, and some of those reasons may be bad. Crowds don't follow and stay for the long haul. It is individuals who become disciples who follow and stay for the long haul. Now, Peterson, in his uh, paraphrase, the message, I think kind of helps us get to what I'm getting at. Then I'll try to drive home my argument. He says you could paraphrase verse 34 this way, looking around, taking in everyone seated about him. In other words, Jesus looked at this one and 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 this one. And some of them he knew. They're here because they are sincere, genuine. They will follow me as a disciple. There are others who are here. For example, maybe the scribes from Jerusalem are there. Could it be that some of the Pharisees from back in chapter 3, verse 6 are there? Could it be that even some of the Herodians from chapter 3, verse 6 are there? Could it be that there are those who are there simply because he healed them of their disease, chapter 3, verse 16, because they were healed of demon possession, chapter 3, verse 11? Might it be that there are those who have come that are just curious about this miracle worker that is now making the rounds in Galilee? I don't think Jesus was saying that every single person in this room is my mother, my brother, are my sister. I don't think he's saying that at all. And indeed, I think we learn from the context that people follow Jesus then and today for different reasons and with different agendas. Some want him as their Savior, as their Lord, as their Master, as their King. But others want him for what he can do. They want him for what they think they will get from him. That is, again, the damnable nature of what is called prosperity theology. They don't want Jesus because they want Jesus. They want Jesus because of what they think Jesus will give them. But before I pick on them, I need to pick on me and pick on you. Why do you want Jesus? 
Do you want Him because you want Him? Do you want Him because you love Him? Do you want Him even if He gives you nothing and even calls you to live a life that can result in your suffering and even in your death? Do you still want Him even if that happens to be the conditions upon which you get Him? Later we'll get to Mark chapter 8. And He will say, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Basically, Jesus says this, you want to come after me? Follow me and die. Follow me and die. I didn't say that. Jesus said that. And so it helps us get things in perspective when we understand who he was talking about when he says in verse 35, here is my brother, here is my sister, here is my mother. John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25 provide a very good commentary on this. I'll just read the text for you. Jesus has just performed his miracle at the wedding at Cana, turning the water into wine. And at the end of chapter 2, this is the commentary of John. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And the key phrase there is, on his part, he did not entrust himself to them. So that then leads us to our third major observation tonight. Being a part of the family of God is revealed by doing the will of God. Jesus provides a very simple clear blanket statement in verse 35 concerning who is a part of the family of God and who is not. And it's very simple. For whoever, there's no one excluded from this invitation, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, my sister, and my mother. Luke chapter 8, verse 21, which is the parallel account of this story in Luke's gospel, says it this way, those who hear the word of God and do it. And I like that. Of course, hear whoever does the will. How can you do the will of God unless you first hear the word of God? So the two always go together in tandem. So whoever hears the word of God and does it, then this is the one who is a part of my family. Now, lest we get confused here and buy into a faulty view of salvation, let me quote uh, Kent Hughes, who for many years served as a pastor in Wheaton, uh, Illinois. He says it exactly right, and I quote, Obedience does not originate relationship with God. Faith does that. But obedience is a sign of it. I obey to become a part of God's family? No. But because I am a part of God's family by adoption through faith in Christ, then I will obey. And now that you have this new relationship, again, I like what Kent says, this new family relationship is far superior. It's eternal. It's far stronger. It is far more satisfying. It is far more demanding. And it is far more dear than any human relationship you will ever experience or ever know. Tim Keller, who pastors in New York City and has just been used by God in a, in a fabulous way, uh, says we can learn something about what Jesus is saying here in Mark 3, 31 through 35 by examining the truth of the parable of the prodigal son. 
which is really the parable of the prodigal sons, are actually more uh, correct. It is the parable of the loving father. And he says, look at that, and you'll see some insight into what is involved in being a part of God's family. So I'll just share this very quickly, and I quote, Jesus, he is the true elder brother. He willingly brings us into the father's family at his expense. He died for us. He was plundered for us. We sit at the Father's table dressed in Jesus' clothes with his ring on our finger all through him. We must celebrate then and live out the fact that we are members of a kingdom family. And it is all at the expense of our big brother, Jesus Christ. By the way, in Hebrews, he is called our elder brother. You live every day as if you were a member of God's family, accepted and loved. Remember, and this is the key statement, really. Remember. A child in a family obeys not in order to be loved and accepted, but because he already is loved and accepted. And that's exactly what Jesus is laying the foundation for here in verse 35. Now, it should not surprise us that Jesus makes a big deal out of the will of God. As I was working through this text and began to study it, I uh, pulled a concordance and took advantage of some friends of mine, and we just kind of surveyed, uh, and, it, and, and what I gave you tonight in your notes is far less than what was out there, but I highlight for you in your notes 13 different times in the Bible where the phrase, the will of God, appears. And so you see them, but let me quickly read them for you. Just listen as I read the text. I'll cite the text and then read it and just listen to how important the will of God is in the Bible. Acts thirteen twenty two, And when he had removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a, listen, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Which came first? His heart. Then his doing the will of God. One of my favorite verses, Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is the will of God, Paul? What is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul, 1 Corinthians 1, 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Again, in 2 Corinthians 1, 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Ephesians 6, 6. Don't do it by the way of eye service. Your, your eye is always on others who are watching you as a people pleaser. No, 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 no. Do it as a servant of Christ. Doing the will of God, listen, from the heart. It's a beautiful how often the Bible connects the two together. First Thessalonians 4, 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. First Thessalonians 5, 18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Hebrews 10, 36. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what he has promised. First uh, Peter 2.15 For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. First Peter 3.17 For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. 
1 Peter 4, 2. Live for the rest of this time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And then finally, uh, for, well, two more. 1 Peter 4, 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, you suffer according to God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And then 1 John 2, 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God, what? Abides forever. So, some concluding biblical and theological observations about this issue of who is part of the family of God. Number one, we become children of God by spiritual birth, not physical birth. Jesus makes that clear as well in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, where he says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Number two, no one is born a Christian. You become a Christian and a member of God's family by adoption. Galatians 4 and Romans 8. Number three, becoming part of the family of God begins when we receive and believe in Jesus. John 1, 12, which is a sovereign work of his will, not ours. Number four, our text this evening, doing the will of God, gives evidence that we are a part of God's family. Number five, now mark this and note what comes at the end. Those incapable of knowing and understanding the will of God are objects of God's saving grace and mercy in Christ. People spend eternity in hell as a result of their conscience, conscious, excuse me, and willful acts of rebellion and disobedience against the revelation of God they have received. In Deuteronomy 139, 2 Corinthians 5:10, and Revelation 20, uh, 11 and following make that crystal clear. And again, I, I doubt I'm asked any question more than this one. And so there in my notes, I've noted that several years ago, Dr. Al Mohler and I wrote an article entitled, Why We Believe Children Who Die Go to Heaven. And you can go to the website there and uh, access that and have a more full argument of the fact that we believe that though we do come to this world with a sin nature, and because sin is present, children, infants do die, because they're not capable of discerning what it means to do the will of God or to disobey the will of God. They are the objects of God's saving grace and mercy. Number six, revelation brings responsibility. The more you know, the greater is your accountability. Thus, punishment is not equal in hell, and rewards are not all the same in heaven. Number seven, in spite of sophisticated and even well-intended arguments, there's no biblical warrant or evidence that people have a post-mortem opportunity to believe in Jesus or that eventually all persons, perhaps even demons, will be saved. Just as eternal life is forever, so is eternal death. Now, let me go back. You say, what, what do you mean when you use that phrase there, post mortem opportunity. There are some theologians, he is now dead and so he now knows better, but Clark Pinnock uh, taught for a number of years that if you had never heard the gospel, he believed there was a very strong likelihood that upon death you would be confronted with Jesus and then given a chance to say yes or no uh, in terms of believing in him and embracing the gospel. So he believes that uh, death is not the end in terms of your opportunity to be saved. He believed in a post-mortem opportunity for persons to say yes to Christ. It's just not in the Bible. Just like universalism's not in the Bible. 
just like annihilationism of the unbelieving is not in the Bible. And so just as eternal life is forever, so is eternal death forever in conscious awareness and torment. Number eight, if it is true that all will eventually be saved, evangelism is unnecessary and missions is a waste of time, lives, and billions of dollars. In other words, you're an idiot for being here tonight, and so am I. And we were really stupid for giving 48,000-plus to send people to the ends of the earth when they don't need to go. By the way, when you begin to reject biblical authority, you'll quit believing that Jesus is the only way to heaven, and you'll quit sending missionaries. Today, the Methodists send next to no missionaries. The Presbyterians sin next to no missionaries. The Lutherans and the Episcopalians sin next to no missionaries, at least in their main line uh, denominations, because they no longer believe that Jesus is the only Savior. Well, if you don't believe Jesus is the only Savior, why would you give your life and give your money and even run the risk of martyrdom for something that you don't need to do? And by the way, if they're correct, then we don't need to go. And we don't need to give. And we ought to be doing something else tonight. Then number nine. Because the Bible promises that people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will be in heaven at the throne to worship the Lamb, Revelation 5 and Revelation 7, we work and rejoice in knowing that the family of God will consist of 16,548 different people groups scattered across the world, and that as of this moment, the 6,918 that are still unreached will also be represented in heaven as well. And as I close tonight, I, I just got interested in this. You, every, every Wednesday night, uh, Pastor Bill puts up on the screen when we pray uh, the people group of the day uh, that is sent out from the Joshua Project. I, we, we at the seminary have a blog called Between the Times, and the same thing appears every day on our blog, this unreached people group that we uh, pray for by name. I get the thing to my email. You can do this, by the way. You can go to the Joshua Project, and they will send you directly every day by email that unreached people group. And so I decided to go and just scan very quickly the largest unreached people groups, and it got overwhelming, and so I finally stopped at 30. But if you look at the bottom of your notes and to the end, you will, you will note 30 people groups of which there is 0.00 evangelical believers today. And you will see people like Algerians, 24 million. And you'll see people like um, uh, the Bania in India, 25 million. You'll see the Brahmin in India, 54 million. The Chamar in India, 48 million. The, the, the Yacht in Pakistan, 32 million. And on it goes and goes. And it's just mind-boggling. I mean, you could almost get depressed, except we have a promise that there are going to be people from every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation represented at the throne as a part of the family of God. And so I just note as I close, right before you see that list, it is the will of God that all of these people hear and believe. And it is the will of God that we go and get them for His glory that they too might become a part of the family of God by trusting in Christ, doing His will, and then becoming a part of that grand, glorious throng that will be gathered around His throne in heaven. I'm not 
I get discouraged sometimes. But the Word of God always helps me overcome and once more be optimistic. Now the thing for us to do is verse 35, do the will of God. Let's pray. Father, uh, this is a tough saying because when Jesus says his mother and his brothers and sisters are not a part of his family, that would have been absolutely shocking in that day. They, they would not have known how to handle that. And so the, the shock of it's a little lesson for us who've grown up in the church because we think in different categories. So maybe this is a good time for us once more to really understand and really reflect upon what does it mean and how does one become a part of the family of God. And I, I love the fact that Paul helps us out when he says, well, look, if you are a part of this family, you've been adopted. Because you belong to another family. You belonged to another kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. And as Jesus said to the religious leaders in, in John's gospel, the devil is your father. And whether we knew it or not, he was our spiritual head until by faith in Jesus we came into your family. That then, Lord, is a reminder for us tonight to be faithful to share the gospel, to be faithful to let others know how they too can become a part of God's family. They're not right now. We're not all children of God. That is wrong. That is untrue. Only those who come to Jesus get God as their father. So may we be about the business of proclaiming that message, sharing it broadly even promiscuously, as the Puritans said, that others might, too, become a part of our family, a family made possible by King Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.